0: So I love what Judith had to share. Um, I especially love this. It starts with him, she said, and it ends with him. And in the middle of it, he sets us free, enables us to live in a way that is rooted and grounded in love. Paul told the Ephesians church, Ephesian church in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2 Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Nate, could you take just a little bit off? I just feel like I'm a little too loud. Thank you. Paul is saying, you are his kids. You're his beloved children. And as such, you are to walk in his love. You don't get the second without the first. You don't get the cart before the horse. We have to be loved of God before we can ever walk out his love. But remember this, and we're about to get into some areas that are dicey, because walking in his love also has a framework. It has has parameters, boundaries around it in which it can all work. One of the metaphors Paul uses in the book of Ephesians for our sanctification is that we are students of Jesus. We're learning him, learning Christ. And it makes me think of the way parents help their children learn, right? This is something uh, we all have to do if we're parents or we have to work with kids. We are helping set a framework for the learning to occur. It doesn't matter whether they're learning how to walk or they're learning how to drive. A good parent is going to motivate them to learn the right way. No one wants to have a kid that's 16 years of age driving on the wrong side of the road. That would be destructive, damaging. And so you learn and you make a framework for your kid to learn the right way. Um, you set boundaries. You, you give regular encouragement. You reinforce their success. And that's what God does with us. He is, as she said, the good, good father. And he doesn't want to kill our joy. He he wants to fill us with joy. He doesn't want to rob us of life. He wants to give us life more abundant. It reminds me of how Donna has made a great experience for our 12, yes, 12 grandkids to come over to our house. It's a... Uh, it's a wonderful time, any and all of them come. And Donna has gone to great lengths to kid-proof our home, to make it where they can come into our home and really have a tremendous amount of liberty to be there and be enjoyed by us and hopefully they enjoy us. Honey-granted liberties, that's what she is, she's called Honey. Honey-granted liberties go a long way to our grandkids experiencing the fullness of what it means to be one of my grandkids which it's, it's a pretty good deal. <laughs> Several of them just ran out just a minute ago. I mean, we have everything for these kids. We have a whole room upstairs that is chock full of toys. It is They can play with anything in that room anytime they want to. They, it is chock full of toys. It has a train table and a rocking horse and has hand puppets and magnets that you can build things in it. And they have stuffed animals and they have veggie tale movies that are from eons ago. Uh, they have everything they would want in that playroom. That's for them. They know they can go play there anytime. And when they get hungry, all they have to do is go to the pantry because right there at eye level for a little five-year-old is a big box of snacks. And there are there are gummy things. Uh, there are <laughs> f- f- fruits. Fruit snacks, there are graham crackers, there are chips. They're all certain. Now, they do have to ask permission, but honey never says no. And if they get bored, we have Disney Plus. They can watch movies or Netflix, or if they want to, they can go outside where we've got a playground that we built just for grandkids, the first thing we built when we moved into the house. And there's swings, and there's a, there's a teeter-totter, and there's a slide, and there's a fort, and there's soccer balls. It's great to be one of my grandkids, But here's the thing: there are some places and items that are strictly are strictly off limits. Um, We set boundaries. We put a fence up around the backyard so they can't run out into the street in the front yard. We we don't let them play in the knife drawer. That wouldn't be smart. My dad gave me 30 years ago a classic 38 Special Smith and Wesson handgun. I know, don't look at me like that. I don't let them play with it. It's under lock and key. I don't even know I can get into the safe. We don't let them go to the garage where my power tools are or where the ant poison is. We, there are boundaries. There's great liberty. Lots of love. But there are boundaries. And God does the same thing for us. He purchased our freedom but he also set boundaries because he knows that the moment we get outside the boundaries, we lose our freedom. It destroys us. So he calls us to be holy as he is holy. And the holiness we walk into is, is really much more qualitative than it is quantitative. It's not just being separated from sin, which is that, that is part of it. But it is first being connected to God. That's the only way you can be separated from sin is to be connected with God. It allows us to increasingly experience the life of the spirit and yes, to overcome the works of the flesh and have victory over sin and to be full filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul addresses a lot of this stuff that are the limitations, the boundaries, the parameters of living. Not because he wants to squelch our life, but because he knows God wants to give us abundant life. So if you would look with me at Ephesians 5 and verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, I bet I don't have to convince anyone sitting here today that our world is full of these things he just listed. I bet I don't have to persuade anyone. I bet you're probably in agreement with me when when I say to you that these things he mentioned sexual immorality and impurity or filthiness and covetousness and or greed and 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 filthy talk, coarse jesting, joking at the expense of other people our world is full of those things. The Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. Sound familiar? It's where we get the word pornographic from, and it's a broad term covering covering all sorts of sexual sin and I, I'm not going to get into a, a list of what those things are here today but we understand that our modern world has told us that sex is never a sin as long as it's between consenting consenting adults do whatever you want to do there's no limitation in fact you're you're a prude if you limit yourself you're you're Backward, you're not being who you are. You're not having the full expression of who who you were made to be if you don't fully experience all that you would want to sexually. Our world tells us that our culture is sexualized everywhere, everything, like the prolific mainstreaming of the porn industry itself. Um, it. The porn industry profits on the enslavement and the uh, degradation of people, luring people into certain things to do things they wouldn't do otherwise, and they do it to profit and then to fuel sexual fantasies by other people that also degrade themselves. And it's so easy to access. It's alarming. You can access porn anywhere these days and you don't have to be seen while doing it all you have to do is have a smartphone and a big enough data plan it's easier than online shopping just right there in your hand it's estimated that the porn industry and I've shared some of these stats before is net, uh, has a net worth of over 97 billion dollars And that it makes more money annually than the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball combined. Porn sites get more visitors than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Making up 30%, 30% of all internet traffic is pornographic. And the word sex is the number one internet search Accounting for 25% of all internet searches, the word sex is used. 25%. When we indulge in cheap pleasure, requiring no commitment or sacrificial love, we end up broken. We break ourselves. And we get a distorted view of what intimacy is really all about. We, we take the perfect and and wonderful gift that God has given to us in sex between a man and woman in a covenant marriage and we break it, we distort it and we end up ourselves with a hollow experience that has snuffed out more life than it ever gave us. While pornography dehumanizes and exploits people, I wanna say something to anyone that may be listening to me that is ensnared by it. Jesus doesn't hate you. Jesus loves you. He came to set you free from sin and the power of sin and death. He didn't come to put you more into bondage, but to break you out of it. It may take thousands of obediences towards him, but there is a way out. And I want to say to you that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, not to condemn us, but to convict us and bring us out of where we were into the light that he wants us to be. There are people who will walk with you. There are people who understand there is no shame in saying, I need help. I need an accountability partner. I need a filter on my phone. I need someone to walk with me and pray with me and believe God for me. This is what Paul is saying to us. That this kind of thing has to be removed from our lives. But if you're struggling, don't let the shame keep you from getting the help you need. As much as our world is sexualized, I promise you that the Greco-Roman world of Ephesus was too. If you needed to sell your crops in Ephesus in the time of the writing of this letter, what you did was go to the orgies at the bathhouse to find a buyer. That's how commerce was done then. And if you needed to buy food, you bought sacrificed meat at the temple, the pagan temple, where prostitution was actually an act of worship. And if you wanted to be entertained, the theaters all around town, they would show all sorts of sexual fe- sin as if it were art. They would portray it all so you could see it. In Roman ruins all around that we have seen, pornographic art was always on the walls of these Roman homes. You couldn't go anywhere in Ephesus without running into the very things Paul says should not be named among Christians. So while we have the the, the the predominant understanding that sexualization is happening in our world, it's something that has always happened. And it is something that Paul has called us to walk out of. Paul lists with this word porneia, the sexual immorality. He also includes impurity. And I want to say this. For those of you that know my story, I broke myself because of sin. I walked away from what I knew to be true and much of what the power of this that we're talking about today could destroy a person, it almost destroyed me. But God, by his grace, called me out of that darkness and restored me to himself and all the disillusionment and the brokenness and all the things that I had given myself to because I was mad at God He healed my heart and restored me. So don't tell me you can't have victory over sexual immorality. I know it. I've walked it. And I'll walk with you. And so will any of our elders and leaders and people that are sitting around you. Paul adds to this sexual immorality the issue of impurity or, or filthiness. And it's a broad term that really just means anything that's unclean that's just unclean, unsightly. And then he adds to that covetousness or greed, uh, which probably, if we think about it, is even more pervasive than the first two. You see, we can hide greed a whole lot more than we can hide the other two things. But greed is just as detestable in God's eyes. Greed is just simply the insatiable desire for more, more of anything, more of everything more more money more pleasure more sex more of anything that people want more of that's what covetousness and greed is and paul says specifically that this type of attitude and leaning is actually idolatry why because it proves that you desire something more than god paul finally warns against foolish talk or coarse or crude joking now I think about this, I, I, I love to laugh, and I bet a lot of you do too, but if you're laughing at the expense of another person, you need to ask yourself if it's godly or not. A lot of times we laugh at the expense of other people, we, we use coarse jesting, bad humor. I'm not just talking about sexual in nature, I'm talking about just hurtful in nature. I believe that it falls into this list and we need to be careful not to fall prey to that. And rather, Paul says, we need to be those who offer up thanksgiving to God. So here he puts it, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, foolish talk, crude joking. At the core, they're all selfish. They're all self-centered. The furthest thing from the agape love that Jesus has shown us. You see, We already have the definition of love back in verse 2. And walk in love. How? As Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is the definition of love. Jesus exhibits that to us and expects for us to be changed by it so that we can also walk in it. Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon those who disobey. It's seen as a future event, but it happens the moment you enter into it. It's wrathful to be in this kind of behavior, in this kind of lifestyle, in this kind of brokenness. God comes upon the sons of disobedience, and that is for anyone who disobeys, there's wrath associated with it. And he explained it really well, the, to the nth degree, what he said to the Roman church in Romans 1, 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. They gave themselves to it, and so he gave them over to it. And to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Who is blessed forever? Amen. Look what Paul said next to the Romans. Excuse me, to the Ephesians, verse seven. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for all. For at one time you were you were darkness. That phrase, you weren't just in the darkness; you were darkness. But now you are not just in the light; you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, it doesn't mean that you go around exposing people when they're in sin. It means you ought to expose yourself first, and then as someone humbly is there with you, you can walk out of that. It's not about you pointing fingers. It's about you walking in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another. All right, so where was I? For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, quoting the prophet Isaiah, awake, O sleeper. And rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul says, don't partner. Don't, don't marry yourself to these things. Don't, don't align yourself with them. Don't join in their activities. Don't identify yourself with that lifestyle. It's unfruitful, and it's dark, and it gets you outside the boundaries of God, and it will destroy you. The sexual revolution of the 1960s has not amounted to all the good that they promised us. It has made us more sick and broken and dysfunctional and marriage is not working and you name it. Paul says we're not to walk that way. But I want to also remind you that we were darkness. (laughs) So before we get all high and mighty and pious and start pointing our fingers at others who are not doing it right and know you will not inherit the kingdom of God and you're going to hell, just remember this. But by the grace of God, you were darkness. I was darkness. And it's only by God's grace that I am now light. We don't smugly judge other people who are worse than ourselves. We love them. We pray for them. We believe God for them. Because if he could save a sinner like me, he might save those two. Paul says we are to now walk as children of light. And we're to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And we're to wake up and to arise from our old dead life. Wake up, O oh sleeper. Christ shine on you. Here's the one thing you need to remember. Actually, it's more than one thing. Here's a thing you need to remember. (laughs) The Christians in Ephesus were really good at doing the things that Paul's writing here. They took these words seriously. They enacted them in their church life. They're they're good at it. You know how I know that? Because almost three decades later, Jesus writes them a letter. Yes, Jesus. Through his servant, the Apostle John. He writes to this same church in Ephesus about 30 years later. And here's what he says. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary listen 30 years from today i would love to get a letter from jesus like that i'd love for him to say some good things about us i'd hope that we had taken the word of god and applied it to our lives and it worked it wasn't just the ephesian church though it was all of the first second and third century church they were good at these things with the grace of God. They were walking. Yes, the church in Corinth had to be corrected. Yes, there were things that had to be adjusted, but they saw that they should be set apart, sanctified. And they did their very best not to partner with sexual immorality or impurity or greed or with coarse talking. They demonstrated love to those who were engaged to those, such things, they, they loved them as neighbors. But they knew that they shouldn't marry themselves to those activities. They separated from such practice. Not partaking in the temples, in the markets, in the bathhouses, in the the theaters. They set themselves apart. They didn't involve themselves in the darkness of their day. But Jesus had something else to say to this church. He didn't stop with that nice commendation. Revelation 2.4 says... Jesus said to them, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. It always comes down to love. Walking in love, being rooted and grounded in His love. The only way that we will ever walk in His light is if we first walk in His love. As Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, God's parameters for living are distinct, they are a definite framework for how we're to live our lives. And he gives us grace and strength to walk out of the darkness, to take off the old self, the old clothing of what our, our own righteousness could do, which was nothing more than filthy rags. And he gives us the power to put on the new self, a new set of clothes, a new humanity. But if we don't do it in love, none of that will take place in our lives. The liberty that we have in his love is like having the run of the house like being at Honey's house. Out in the wide open spaces of his glory and grace. But we must walk in his love in order for us to walk in his light. So I share in closing. Wake up, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. And Christ will shine in you. Amen.